Hello, this is Molly Walls from Farrar, Strauss, and Drew, and you're listening to Wellversed, FSG's Poetry Month podcast. For this episode, I spoke to the poet Hannah Sullivan about her debut, Three Poems, which we published this January. Three Poems is a collection of three long poems about, in order, coming of age, repetition, and the birth of the poet's son following the death of her father. The collection won the prestigious T.S. Eliot Prize and the inaugural John Pollard Foundation International Poetry Prize. As Dwight Garner wrote in the New York Times, quote, if you are missing cocktail bars, New York City before the shutdown, or simply pellucid and startlingly intelligent poetry, Three Poems is a book for you. Sullivan's frame of reference is effortlessly wide. You follow this writer where she wishes to take you, end quote. I spoke to Hannah at a folding table in my bedroom in Flatbush. On the other side of our video chat, she was in Dorset in Southwest England. We discussed closure, the internet, waste, chronological time, and rhyme. Our conversation has been condensed for clarity, by which I mean my own. She is an acutely eloquent speaker, despite our tenuous digital connection. She begins by reading from the first poem, You Very Young, in New York. Rosie used to say that New York was a fairground. You'll know when it's time, when the fair is over, but nothing seems to happen. You stand around on the same street corners, smoking, thin-elbowed, looking down avenues in a lime green dress with one arm raised, waiting to get older. Nothing happens. You try, without success, the usual prescriptions, the usual assays on innocence. I love you to the wrong person. I feel depressed, kissing a girl, a sharpness, sea urchin juice cleansers, but the senses laxly fed are self-replenishing, fresh as the first time, so even the eventual sameness has a savour for you. Even the sting when someone flinches at I love you is not unwelcome, like the ulcer on your tongue wetted on the ridges of a tooth. And when he slams you hard against the frame, the poor ticked sallow bruise seems truer than the speed, the spasm with which you came. So nothing happens. No matter what you try, the huge lost innocence at which you aimed recedes, like long perspectives, like the sky square at the end of fifth, whitening at dawn, unseen as you watch the unlit cabs go by. Thank you very much for reading that. I love this section and this poem and the whole book. Um, the opening tercet sort of alludes to a kind of closure. And I wonder if you could speak about the genesis of the poem and if you begin with the beginning and if so, why begin with an ending? Um, yeah, no, I actually wrote this section last. It was the last thing I wrote for a poem that seems in retrospect compared to the poems I've written more recently to have had an extremely easy genesis and that I wrote it in about two weeks at the end of the first year of teaching at Oxford and just before we moved back from um, the states finally we still had a house in san francisco um to, to the uk um so this i did see it as a kind of conclusion to the poem or to the writing process but um when the poem was first published in magazine form um by craig rain at arate he suggested moving this section to the beginning which i think does do work a lot better um but uh, yeah i had seen it as a as a kind of closural scene Tertzarima, I guess, as a form, this is a form that engages that question about closure versus on ongoingness, you know, what tips over and what um, remains. So you, there are different ways in which you can end Tertzarima, but um, my square at the end of fifth, whitening at dawn, 
um, is a word that doesn't really find a rhyming pair. So I guess that's sort of stranded there. I'm interested in the the criticism you've written about finishing, especially (laughs) as that relates to autobiography and diary. And um, you speak about the like generic conditions of those two forms, but I wonder if poetry shares a desire to finish or an anxiety around completion, its possibility or impossibility. Um, for sure, yeah. I mean, it's funny to think about these critical essays. I mean, these are things that I wrote, you know, not long after I left graduate school that I certainly thought had no personal meaning for me. The question of a diary and how you finish a diary was um, you know, merely an intellectually interesting question and one that other people, especially Philippe Lejeune, the French theorist, had written about substantially already. I guess now I look back at it and also the book I wrote about revision, um, these mm-hmm. are personal, you know, sort of craft-based problems for me in some way, which are being staged very explicitly at the moment by a poem that I started writing um, in, in January, which actually to begin with, it was um, going to be a single day poem. Um, that's a structure that I guess this poem about New York has. It's in a way a story of a single day that is um, also splintered across a full year. So it begins with getting up and it you know, ends with not going to bed, but, but walking home in the morning. And I was going to set this new poem, um, which is all about the quotidian um, life of less glamorously than in this poem, I guess, of, you know, being a parent to young children and, and being in central London. Um, a lot of it's about being in, indoors. Um, I was going to set it all on my birthday, but so many things have happened this year as news items that I found it somehow impossible to restrict this poem that was already about isolation and being kind of quarantined indoors and have now broken, you know, the unities and updated it to the present so I've got up to kind of April the first you know we're speaking um how I will end it I I don't know do you keep a diary Mm, no I don't know I mean I I I have done um um I when I first got a laptop when I was a student I started keeping one because I felt you know for the first time that no one would read it that it was secret then I was very upset when technology changed and my diary was stored on floppy disks it was quite an extensive diary I kept it for a few years it was all completely lost but now um it's not only that I don't have time and I don't really I actually don't think I would know how to write it like I wouldn't know what kind of information was salient I've been thinking about it a lot because of the poem that I'm trying to write about mm-hmm. and I do want to touch on some things to do with the current you know global political epidemic um and but I'm not quite sure how to do that because it seems as if in some ways poems treat things most accurately only when they're in retrospect. It's extremely difficult, in fact, to to pick out on a strange, you know, day like today for me. It's a physically strange day. I've woken up in a house in Dorset that I had not been to before a couple of months ago. Um, I've had both of my children at home all day. I've had a number of, you know, Zoom and Microsoft Teams meeting to do grading and with students that normally would have been done face to face. I've walked outside. I've noticed that there are now some real buttercups as well as the the lesser celandine uh, flower that Wordsworth writes about a lot, but I'd never seen before um, that there are all of these things that are happening in my daily life that are basically trivial, but perhaps one or two of them are important. Um, So it feels like it would almost be easier to write a diary like a year later, you know, Mm -hmm. for the the day, but a year on or some some strategic period of time. You're speaking a bit about the internet and um, I love the way that that digital space weaves through the collection in in this first poem some of the pressures and challenges of working remotely felt resonant to me especially this time around oh no thank you I mean it's, it's actually it's very kind of you to say that but it's it's good to hear it because I do have some feeling of embarrassment I think or potential embarrassment that 
this poem, which was actually written in 2012, in some respects have dated quite badly, or that at least it, it is a technologically dated poem. I mean, I'm now 41. I, I feel myself at one remove from, from this culture in some respects. Evening comes without seeing light again between you and a window, the beige Lego maze of officers, people whose names you don't know. You should be addressing inefficiencies in online processes, mastering multi-channel, getting serious about small business. You've created a spreadsheet with 13 tabs, the managers giving you hell, ordering sushi, cancelling cabs. The senior partner calls from Newark. Thanks team, his thin voice purrs. He's sipping something, let's make it a win-win. But in the morning, brushing his new teeth, looking out into the snow's huge act of world effacement, it's lethargy. He knows things are a liquid, freezing up. Light is abortive on the grayscale park. It's a short of a fucking market. In Chennai, meanwhile, a man is waiting for your analysis, eating his breakfast of microwave dal and mini idlis, checking the cricket scores on his computer, reading Thoreau, wondering what New York looks like at night in snow. He's applying to Columbia, NYU Stern, and Stanford GSB. He thinks of going abroad as an attempt to live deliberately, imagining the well-stacked fires and iron-fenced Victorians, the senior partner's grace under pressure, his Emersonian turn of phrase, the summers spent sailing, the long reaches of sand loosely threaded with grass on Cape Cod beaches. Thank you for that. Um, I was struck by these sorts of corporate Argo or kind of startup lexicography, um, which actually Anna Wiener, I think, writes about really well in Uncanny Valley, and she calls yeah, she it... she does. I love that book, yeah. Yeah, garbage language, which I think is it's a great characterizing yeah. phrase. I mean, yeah. I think it's language that is, um, for me anyway, emerged into my consciousness when I worked at, at McKinsey, which was not a job that, although we used the internet to send emails and, and files, you know, it was a job that largely still relied on the fax machine in some ways. But this language, I loathed when I worked there and I really felt that all we did was to take you know a set of slides from one corporation and then kind of run it for a different problem using the same garbage language is exactly the right phrase. Um, this phrase garbage language could extend to the second and third poems which follow an entropic logic and are concerned with overuse and ruin and waste. Um, could you speak to that? Um, so the second poem in the book, um, subtitled The Heraclitus Poem, is about repetition. At least I thought when I was writing it, I was writing a kind of inquiry, a tentative sort of inquiry. I didn't really have anything to contribute to the number, vast number of people that have written about it before, about phenomena of repetition and how you might group them together or separately. So the earlier examples are very simple, um, you know, things like walking into the same river twice or a group of black cats, you know, do the cats look similar or do they look different from each other? And the examples by the end of the poem to do with historical situations at the Second World War, recapitulating the first are, I guess, more difficult. They were more difficult for me to think about as examples of revision. One of the examples um, which relates to some of the things we've been talking about is about gentrification. So that's one of the parts of the poem that's set most clearly in San Francisco, which I think really all of the poem is, is set in. Um, but it's about the the way in which um, hipster culture takes you know, various symbols and uh, kind of artifacts of um, a counterculture, like the counterculture of the late sixties, and recycles them in ways that makes them very inert or makes these these um, totemic things somehow meaningless. Um, mm -hmm. 
I could read that section possibly. It's a sonnet. Um, yeah, please do. Read that. Okay, this is this is three point two one. Coughing in fog, sweet skunk of Jack Carrere, an old man lumbering with a muck, plum-eyed, waving his glass piece at you. You take pride in fucking up the things we fought them for. His breath is feline, fish-tin in the air, and yet his choice of hat is not absurd. The tenderloin is also gentrified. Straw panamas are what the hipsters wear. Mid-century has never been more chic. Techies and vintage Levi's get a fix from looking for authentic mission dives. I'd like something with egg white and mezcal. Angel investors underwrite it all. The shit stained can. The iPhone afterlives. Your detail is so rich, and I think this is also such a vivid instance of the way that you employ rhyme, <laughs> which is always sort of, I don't know, slant or slight or embedded or the sort of terzarima scheme that you named earlier. And I wonder how you settle upon rhymes. Do you acquire them over time? Do they, do they come naturally? This, these poems, the couplets and the sonnet, obviously work with end rhyme, um, which um, I suppose I, I do find perhaps a lot of modern poets do um, really, really neat end rhyme, um, particularly on monosyllables, to be um, you know cliched potentially. That there are just some some phrases. This poem can quote some of them, you know, must, dust, shade, glade, thought, naught. That uh, me the um, that those words have been rhymed too many times to allow you to rhyme them with complete sincerity. But if you're off rhyming or rhyming polysyllabic versus monosyllabic words or something, then maybe there are more possibilities. Um, right now, I find that in what I write, I just use, seem to use a lot of internal rhyme. And, you know, frankly, it doesn't, it obviously occurs without me noticing it because sometimes when I start reading it out, I think, oh dear, you know, I have to actually get rid of some of this, you know, jingle um, mm. or this this rhyme that is, in a way, producing the thought. And that maybe it's useful to, to lead ahead of your mind and, and produce a different image. Um, I've just been writing a poem that has a little section set in Berlin and mm. I did find that I hadn't been to Berlin for a number of years that things, certain things like the way that the tram lines look were echoed for me in my mind because they rhymed with things that I knew that I wanted to write about if that makes sense. In the last poem the um, images of entropy are to do with um, matter that once had a form and is now disintegrating into shapelessness or formlessness. It's a poem that has a much more parochial sort of set of settings than the first two. A lot of it is set in and around hospitals. But I did become quite preoccupied when I had my first child with the fact that there was this miraculous possibility that even though most things go to shit all of the time, um, occasionally, just occasionally, you can turn something, you know, up in that process. You can reverse the, the general law of entropy and create a kind of highly structured, um, minimally entropic new thing. We're living in times where it is, at least here in, in Britain, extraordinarily difficult to see how in some ways we've got to the world in which we're in and how we could possibly get back to a more organised world. In fact, even how we could get back to a world where people, you know, conduct their economic lives somewhat normally without, you know, without being in terrible fear or of getting sick or in fact being sick. Um, I mean, we are living in a world which far more than any world in my lifetime feels as if it has kind of run out, it's run out of energy and, and organisation, but it's just a, a wildly disorganised and um, isolated world where we're all in our homes, kind of on the internet all the time, but otherwise, oh, it's in real life noise at your end, um, otherwise not engaging. Yeah. How does it feel to write right now, given the 
historical questions that you're asking and the doom and disorder of daily life. Indeed. Um, in one sense, it feels quite um, frustrating. Um, you probably heard my residual, I assume, COVID-19 cough is a number of weeks ago now. Um, you know, like a lot of people have been sick, not very sick, so I didn't have a test, maybe it wasn't that. Um, my children are not at nursery and school. I have a full-time job. Um, so a writing project I'd been kind of in, deeply engaged with in March and for the first time in, you know, some years was happy with what I was writing, got completely derailed. And, you know, there have been moments when I've felt this is an incredibly selfish thing to be upset about right now, but I have been somewhat upset about the fact that I have not been able to continue um, writing this this poem that I thought, I think I might have brought to a close um, if this hadn't happened. Weirdly, the thing that I was writing about before the event also had seemed to have something to do with the event. Yeah. <coughs> I'm sorry, I really... <coughs> um, in that I was already writing a poem, and now seems a pity to me that I dwelt so uh, firmly on these um, incidents that was about kind of being locked in my house with small mm. children, things that were seen from my kitchen window or waving to someone from the front door. Like There are actually no incidences of contact in the poem that wouldn't be possible still, you know, because it's a poem of social distancing sort of before... Um, you know, that was invented, but I started writing it at the turn of the year. Um, so so maybe it was somehow in the air. I don't know. Should, we, should I read the, uh, some of the opening of it, maybe? Yeah, that would um, be great. This isn't a part that makes any reference to, um, you know, the contemporary situation. The first half having been given up to space, I decided to devote my remaining life to time, this thing we live in, fishily or on like moss or the spores of a stubborn candida strain only to be gored or gaffed roots fossicked out by rake or have our membranes made so permeable by azole drugs, the contents of the cell flood everywhere. The bubble gun I'd bought on Amazon had come so flushed Time's new novitiate, I stood outside the door in velour slippers with a plastic wedge from M&S, the toes gone through and practiced pulsing softly on the trigger, pushing dribbly, hopeless sack shapes out dead embryos that managed all the same to write themselves to spheres and bob as bubbles do, the colour of a rainbow minced or diced into the ornamental tree or else just brim the fatal fence most out of reach of the toddler capering side to side to keep his balance on the grass, one snotty finger prodding like a rapper turned jihadist's threat of threat and all, ten seconds in, unskinned of radiance, re-rendered air. Um, that is the first half of the opening section. Mm, I love the line, time, this thing we live in. <laughs> uh, yes, feels like it, doesn't it? Um, Somehow, I mean, I um, officially or on like moss, all the spores of a stubborn candida strain. I'm always a little bit uncertain in myself about a, a tendency to uh, kind of duplicate metaphor, you know, to, to aim for one metaphor and then tire of it or find it inadequate in some way and try to qualify what was inadequate about it with a with a second metaphor. But that's something that seems to be happening in this poem a certain mm. amount. I mean, I, I'm. One thing that struck me also on this reading of three poems was this hermetic quality of, of days in certain periods of chronological time, especially in the, in the second poem, and how that bristles against historical progress. 
I'm just generally interested in the way that time is moving or not moving for others right now. And, and I wonder what it feels like for you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, you put that very well. I mean, the, I suppose I'm not thinking of the, um, you know, the Larkin poem, where can we live, but days, uh, days are where we live. Um, but it's true that we, I mean, it's a basic philosophical problem, right? I mean, in some, some senses, it's a kind of Zeno's paradox. We are only ever in a particular moment. And so how do you connect, you know, the singularity of that moment to other possible moments? How do you actually turn from, you know, a point into a, into a line? Um, there is something particular about the day that seems the most obvious of those siloed units, I guess, that, um, and that is true now with some of the restrictions that we face, you know, that at least in England, we're allowed to go outside, um, in theory, once a day to exercise. You know, you can't go twice on Monday, but not at all on Tuesday. The, the, the allowance is given, you know, over again with each new day. I feel that we're all comparing days, you know, we're comparing with 14 days behind Italy, or is it 10, or is it only seven? Um, a day is a good day or a bad day for death. So at least here, a, a good day is usually followed by a bad one because it means some you know, change perhaps on Sunday at the weekend in counting procedures where deaths were omitted. So I feel that we've all been forced to live much more than before, perhaps within individual days, and yet those days also are very similar to each other. Um, I think many of us feel very hungry now for some of the the small rituals that make days separate from each other, which you know, for some people might be something like going to church, for other people it's just going to work at school on a Monday morning. I feel too that there's an interesting thing with a poem whereby um, I seem to be more able to write long poems than, than short poems, but um, writing, and maybe that's for all writers, in some on a very daily basis like it's a good day or a bad day most days I don't even try yeah. and I can tell if it's a good day or a bad day pretty quickly um so now I've learned not to persevere for too long on a bad day one thing about the the long poem that I wrote um was about the fire in the Grenfell Tower mostly about that it's a topic that a number of poets have written about now but um that was a really um as an event you know an event that that was to people experiencing it both inordinately long and short you know that the to be trapped in your your apartment with no way of getting out, no, no one available on the line, or to be worse still, trapped in the stairwell with, you know, smoke, flames, you know, on the outside of the building, black smoke, everything invisible. Five minutes of that is an eternity. But of course, the fire that destroyed the building that had taken a number of years to construct and where people's lives have been built up, you know, slowly and accretively was also very over very quickly. I mean, it was all burnt out by dawn by the time that I knew it had happened I live about a mile away it was all over there was you know some smoke still coming off the shard outside of the building but there were no more flames that is a poem that um, constricts itself not only to a single day but to um, a number of hours in the middle of the night so between people being in bed or one day in June and waking up you know the following morning kind of interday poem mm. these temporal questions dovetail with your use of poetic compression and expansion. But regarding the pandemic, I feel there's a sense that its origins are obfuscated in some way as to make its dimensions diffuse. When did it begin? Where did it begin? But your, your writing on the Grenfell Tower fire strikes me as aware of the fact that even with historical events that appear to be singular, there are always preceding conditions that develop over great swaths of time that have to do with power and control and who wields them. Right. Um, and and that I suppose our sense of is the growth, you know, is the spread of the virus exponential, not that changes your sense of what the relationship between 
days might be you know when that something like doubling is a weird kind of logic to superimpose onto the apparent like linearity of, of days which is something that we're more comfortable with um do yeah. you know the, the poem yeah. by, by james schuyler a few days it begins um are all we have so count them as they pass they pass too quickly out of breath don't dwell on the grave which yawns for one and all will you be buried in the yard sorry it's against the law you can only lie in an authorized plot but you won't be there to know it so why worry about it here i am at my brother's house etc mm. um that um the, the idea of writing a poem that is focused on a few days you know i guess when we read ulysses or you know a novel like issue with a single man or something we, we're taking um each thing that happens is sort of archetypal of all the other days um writing about like the granularity of particularity of what makes each day distinct that seems chaotic and sort of interesting to me at the moment and maybe i'll just i'll just read the the last few lines this is about starting and ending start with a woman watching a man catching his daughter end with a photo end as a woman older than either feeling her own child sag in her arms seeing it all now for the first time after the ending the sideboard with the touched up teak veneer your mother's watchful shrug of hair and your own mouth slewed with laughter feet tilted like a landing goose falling and your father's slender hands stretched out in the wind henna stained praying northolt the old front room the photo with its reddish color cast the faded figure in the catacomb scouring the ceiling watch contrajour a shadow in the shade of the capish shell lamp a mother and the child you were you have been among the living twice and loved both times you have fallen in the lurid air 